Revelation chapter 20. Our text today is verses 1 through 3, Revelation uh, chapter 20, and verses uh, 1 through 3. Whenever there is a, uh, a major uh, football game, uh, the television station that is covering uh, that game will have a number of uh, different cameras uh, set up, and there is a trailer somewhere uh, that has a screen which shows that those things that are on every single camera. And so though there is one game that is being played, one thing that is happening, those cameras are picking up many, many different aspects of that single game uh, that is being uh, played. Uh, And so you could watch uh, that game all the way through and see the variety of experiences that people are having. You could watch that game all the way through on that camera that is merely focused on the home fans. Or another camera that is uh, focused simply on the coach that is on each sideline. Or another camera that is perhaps focused on the quarterback. Or another one that is on one of the wide receivers or on the offensive or defensive line. And each one of those cameras is videoing the same game, but each one of them from a different aspect or different perspective. And I think it's much the same thing that is going on uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, There are, as it were, different cameras that are replaying uh, the same event from Christ's first coming to his second coming. Uh, the pictures that these cameras give us are highly symbolic uh, pictures, but in each one of the segments in the book of Revelation, different truths are emphasized, and yet each one of these perspectives or camera angles then end with the return of Jesus Christ and his sure victory. Uh, As we've been going through the book of Revelation, I've described that this is what is going on. Uh, The same events replayed in a number of different ways through the book of Revelation. So in chapters uh, 1 through 3, we saw there Christ in the midst of his churches, which are the seven golden candlesticks in this world. In chapters 4 through 7 then, we saw Christ opening and fulfilling the seven sealed books of God's sovereign eternal purpose. In chapters 8 through 11, that was the third segment, and we saw there Christ answering the prayers of his people, protecting them from their enemies, vindicating them by executing the seven trumpets of judgment in his providential rule of the universe. Chapters 12 through 14 were the fourth segment, and there we saw Christ and his church persecuted by Satan, uh, by Uh, world governments, and by false ideologies. Uh, Fifth, in chapters 15 and 16, we saw Christ sending his angels to pour out the seven vials of his wrath, or bowls of his wrath, upon the earth. Uh, Then in chapters 17 through 19, we saw Christ's conquest. His conquest over Babylon, and then over the beasts and over the false prophet. And this now takes us to the seventh 
and the final segment in the book of Revelation. Remember each one of these taking us from the first to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we come now to that seventh and final section, uh, which speaks here of Christ's dominion over and destruction of Satan. But then finally, the glory of the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens and new earth, uh, which will exist uh, for all eternity. And so it is with joy in the study of Revelation that we finally come uh, to, this, uh, to this final uh, section. Well, with that in mind, let's now read from Revelation chapter 20 and beginning at verse 1. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's now look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we uh, give you thanks for this portion of your word, and we pray now that the very spirit who inspired this vision given to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos so long ago would now illumine our hearts in a saving understanding of your truth. Lord, we desire uh, to be strengthened and encouraged by every last syllable that you give us in Holy Writ. So, Lord, our God, would you now give us understanding and encourage our hearts today out of this portion of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, we come today to one of the most uh, talked about, written about, and disputed portions of the book of Revelation. Nonetheless, it is a portion of Revelation uh, that I believe is full of tremendous encouragement for the people of God. Uh, we're going to jump right into this passage, uh, and we're going to do it really by discussing a couple of different things. And then we're going to look at some application. And the first of those two things is the meaning of the millennium. Here we're going to read in our passage today of the thousand years. It speaks of the millennium. And there are questions that surround this. And so the first thing that we're going to consider is the meaning of the millennium. And then secondly, we're going to consider the meaning of Satan being bound. So the meaning of the millennium followed by the meaning of Satan being bound. And then from those things, uh, we're going to draw out a couple of different points of application. So that's where we're headed today. Uh, well, first, the meaning of the millennium. Uh, the word millennium is Latin uh, for uh, 1,000 milla years, annus. 
millennium is 1,000 years. And that phrase, 1,000 years, appears six different times from verses 2 through 7. In fact, once in each verse. And it appears nowhere else in all of Scripture. So here in Revelation 20 is the lone place in Scripture where the millennium is mentioned. But though that phrase, 1,000 years, appears nowhere else in Scripture, nonetheless, three different views of the end times have arisen based on varying interpretations of these verses. And the three views are the premillennial view, the post-millennial view, and the all-millennial view. Perhaps even you've had somebody come up to you at some point and say, well, what are you? Are you pre-mill? Are you post-mill? Are you all-mill? What are you? Well, you've maybe heard that question. Well, hopefully today's sermon will help you give an answer to that. The way that you interpret these verses do indeed impact the way that you read Revelation as a whole. And in fact, I would even say the flip of that, that the way that you read Revelation as a whole, and indeed the way that you read even portions of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New, will impact the way as well that you will read Revelation uh, chapter 20. We're going to go through these views in just a moment. But I want to be up front at the beginning. And to be up front is to simply say that I believe that the amillennial interpretation is the most biblically faithful of the three views. And as I have preached Revelation, that is the view that I have consistently taken throughout. Uh, that also is the position of the vast majority of Reformed pastors and theologians uh, today. Now... Uh, that being said, I also very much want to emphasize that there are faithful and godly people who are seeking to be faithful to Scripture who hold to each position. Uh, this is not one of those issues that is a conservative versus liberal kind of issue. But rather, this is an area in which brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree and still esteem one another very highly in the Lord, and can be members as well of the same church. Okay, Even within our own denomination, uh, not every teaching elder and ruling elder agrees in every particular area regarding the end times. And indeed, I want to say that in all three millennial positions, that all three of them believe that Christ will return and that Christ wins in the end. And in heaven, we will not have either the pre-mills or the post-mills or the ah-mills gloating that their interpretation was the correct one after all, but rather, together, we will be boasting in our victorious Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so with all of that, by way of background, I do want to walk through these different views and to help us as we seek to understand the Scriptures together. Well, the first of those three views is uh, the premillennial view. 
Now, this view states that Jesus Christ returns prior to, hence pre-millennial, that Christ returns prior to a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, generally, those who hold to a pre-mill position believe that the chapters of Revelation proceed chronologically, that the end of chapter 19 describes for us the return of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to chapter 20, well, that occurs after chapter 19, so Christ has returned, and then the millennial period is inaugurated. Uh, during this millennial period, resurrected believers will rule with Christ from Jerusalem. Uh, many premillennialists, especially those described as dispensational premillennialists, uh, believe that there will be a restored temple and a restored Jewish state. And that during this millennial period, much, though not all, of the curse against human sin, injustice, disease, sorrow, and death will be radically suppressed. Uh, during this millennium, uh, Satan will be bound. That is, that there will be a complete termination of Satan's activity in the sphere of the earth. That's a direct quote from one a premillennial writer. Uh, after the millennium, then, after that thousand year of reign of Christ on earth from Jerusalem, then Satan will be released for a little while, the battles of Gog and Magog will occur, and then the great white throne judgment will occur. And pre-millennialists argue that this is simply the straightforward and literal reading of the text of Revelation. Well, the post-millennial view is a different view than this. Like pre-mills, Postmillennialists believe that the millennium has, has not yet happened, but it's going to occur still at a future time. However, unlike premillennialists, postmills believe that Christ will return after the millennium. Hence the view postmillennialist. And so for them, the millennium refers to a golden age of the church prior to Christ's return. Uh, during this millennium, Satan's activity will be curtailed, and the vast majority of the world will be converted, and righteousness and peace are going to reign throughout the world prior to Christ's coming. And so post-mills have a very optimistic view about future revival and about the transformation of society. So that's the pre-mill view, the post-mill. Now, thirdly, the amillennial view. Now, that word amillennial is simply a word that means no millennium. Awe is simply the negation, right, of, of something else. So uh, amillennial means no millennium. But I actually think that's kind of an unfortunate name for this position. Uh, all mills believe very much that there is a millennium. After all, the scriptures say it. <laughs> but rather, the millennium is a, a symbolic number. The thousand years symbolically represent the entire age between the two comings of Jesus Christ, which is the age in which we now live. And so perhaps a better name for this position would be 
inaugurated millennialism. But I think that would be a rather mouthful, and it's a hard thing to shorten into a little phrase. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, so according to the all-millennial view, uh, Revelation 20 teaches that with the coming of Jesus Christ, that thousand years is inaugurated. That Satan is bound, and we're going to get there a little bit later, with the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ. That during this thousand year period, that this is the church age in which we now live. That the gospel goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. But then, just prior to Christ's coming, there is going to be, uh, indeed, a kind of a, a period of apostasy and of, of rebellion, of the rise of the Antichrist and so forth. But then that will uh, be defeated at that single coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Now, that's the all-millennial position. Now, I think that there are a number of good arguments for this position and for this understanding of the millennium. And let me just give you a few of those arguments uh, right now. Now, The first of those is simply that Revelation frequently, uh, and perhaps even exclusively, uses numbers in a symbolic way. Haven't we seen that throughout the book of Revelation? Uh, Numbers like the three and a half, or seven, or ten, or twelve, or 144,000. These are numbers which are symbolic. This is, after all, apocalyptic literature written in a kind of symbolic fashion. So I think we should expect the same here. The number a thousand is ten cubed. Uh, it represents a kind of perfect completeness, a long but definite time in which the work of the gospel is uh, completed. Okay, And so Revelation does frequently use numbers symbolically. But then a second point is this, and, and this is kind of against the premillennial position, and that is simply that a strictly chronological reading of Revelation uh, doesn't seem to work. Uh, Let me just give one example. Revelation 19 and verse 15, there it refers to the nations being struck down by Christ's rod and subjected to the winepress of God's wrath. But now we come to Revelation 20 and verse 3, and it says that the nations will no longer be deceived. You want to say, well, how can they no longer be deceived if they've already been struck down? So that is one indication that chapter 20 does not follow chapter 19 chronologically, but rather provides a kind of complementary vision of the same event. And I think that we find this pattern of giving complementary visions of the same event throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, so, for example, in verses uh, chapter 20, verses 7 and ten, through 10, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at this battle. And I think that this battle described there, well, it seems clearly to be the same one that is described in chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. And even the same one that is described back in chapter 16, in verse 14, and chapter 17, in verse 14 as well. Or, to point out another a complimentary event to chapter 20. And that is back in chapter 12 and verses 5 through 12. 
you might remember that story. That was about the woman and the dragon and the child that the woman bore. And there in chapter 12, we were told uh, that uh, in connection with Christ's birth, death, ascension, and coronation, Satan is hurled down from heaven. That was the language in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Well, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It seems to be the same thing that is being described in Revelation chapter 20 and in verse, uh, in, in verse 2. So again, we have events that happen uh, at complementary perspectives, but at the same time. And I think even as you look at these final chapters of Revelation, uh, it's handling things in a kind of thematic way, isn't it? We had a couple of chapters on the fall of Babylon. And then we saw the fall of, or the destruction of the, of the beast and of the false prophet. Now the destruction of Satan. Uh, they're handling things in a sort of uh, thematic way, not necessarily chronologically saying one has to happen and then the other one happens and then the other one happens after that. So I think that this matter of how the book of Revelation is read, is it chronological or is it not, uh, is an argument for an amillennial reading. But now a third argument for amillennialism is and this one is more against postmillennialism. Postmillennialism, you remember, that says prior to Christ's return, there's going to be a kind of golden age of the church. And it's simply to say that the scriptures elsewhere indicate that the last days will uh, largely be times of unbelief, Luke 18.8, self-centeredness, 2 Timothy 3.2, worldliness, Matthew 24, 38 and 39, worship of the Antichrist, as well as tribulation and persecution. 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24. And so indeed, you'll see soon enough that uh, we believe that the gospel does advance in this age, absolutely, but at the same time, we believe that the wicked grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, as it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And so, kind of the post-millennial hopes for a certain golden age of the church uh, seem to ignore passages of Scripture uh, which say some of the opposite. But then the last argument that I want to make right now for kind of an all-millennial view is this. It is that all-millennialism has uh, a vision of the last days and of the kingdom and of the place of Israel, which accords with the rest of Scripture. That it has a vision of the last days, and of the kingdom, and of Israel, which accords with the rest of Scripture outside of Revelation. Uh, regarding, for example, the last days. The rest of Scripture indicates that Christ's coming and the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, and the judgment day, and the end of the age. It indicates that these things will take place together in rapid succession. Those events are, are placed together throughout the rest of Scripture. And there's no indication elsewhere in Scripture that these things are going to be dispersed, especially over a long thousand-year uh, period. 
Well, regarding the kingdom, uh, the rest of Scripture recognizes that the kingdom is not merely a future reality consisting of Christ physically ruling from Jerusalem, but rather, when the Scripture speaks of the kingdom, it speaks of that which was inaugurated at Christ's first coming. Repent. The kingdom of heaven uh, is, is, is drawn near. Okay, It is inaugurated at Christ's first coming. How often Christ speaks of His kingdom and of His rule in this world. And so it's inaugurated at His first coming and consummated at His second coming. And that kind of two-age structure, that now and the not yet, seems to be a consistent feature throughout the New Testament Scriptures. And it's that which seems to be indicated by an all-millennial view of Revelation. Uh, that view of the kingdom. But then regarding Israel, regarding Israel, uh, the rest of Scripture sees that God does not have a separate purpose for Israel than He has for the church. When we look in the New Testament again, we see that many promises that were made to Israel are promises that are fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. And so what we ought to be looking for when we come to the book of Revelation Indeed, is God's great purposes uh, concerning the church in history. And so, those are some of the, the reasons uh, that I think, at least, that an all-millennial view uh, most accords uh, with uh, a proper reading of, of the book of Revelation, or is the most biblically faithful reading of Revelation. Books have been written about this, friends. We've just spent 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, discussing this. So there's much more that could be said. Each of those points could be, could be filled out, uh, certainly. But at least in short, uh, in, in a, a short compass, those are the three views. And at least that un- helps you to understand why the all-millennial view, which I'm going to be uh, preaching on now throughout the rest of the sermon here, I think there's very good reason to think that that is what is being referred to in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 20. Okay, well, let's move on then uh, for the second main point. And then from this point, we're going to have a few points of application. But our second main point now is the meaning of Satan being bound. We've seen the meaning of the millennium. Secondly, now, the meaning of Satan being bound. So look with me at the text. Uh, We have here a very symbolic description, uh, but a very evocative description as well. Children even, you can imagine what's being told here. Uh, The picture begins with an angel in chapter 20. It's an angel who is now coming down out of heaven. This angel holds in his hand a key, and it's a key to a deep abyss. Here you can think of a kind of a, a long shaft with a, with a lid on it that leads down to a very, very deep pit. And this angel also has with him a great chain. Now the angel would use that chain to bind somebody up and to take that person down into that great pit where he will be locked in that great pit. 
Who is this angel going to lock up in the great pit? Well, we're told in verse 2 who it is. It says that the angel then seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Isn't it something that, that these four different names are used uh, for Satan? And it shows something of the, uh, of, of the, the, the hideousness of, of this creature. On the one hand, he's described as, as the dragon. Okay, a dragon is that which is strong, dangerous, breathing fire. It's crafty in its designs. Then it's described as the ancient serpent. There we are reminded that this same Satan is the one who appeared as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And who even tempted Eve and Adam in their state of innocence to sin. And indeed, through their sin, it was then brought upon the entire human race. It is this serpent. And of course, it is this serpent against whom the Lord also made that first gospel promise that he shall be destroyed by the seed of the woman. So he is the dragon, the ancient serpent. But then, thirdly, he's called here the devil. The devil refers to the slander. He is a liar and the father of lies, the scripture says. The words that he speaks are those of untruth, countering God's pure truth with his own lies. And then he's described next as Satan. The word Satan refers to the one who is the adversary and accuser of the brethren. So Satan throws his accusations around. What a great enemy Satan is to your soul. Do you realize what an extraordinary enemy there is that exists? There's a real Satan. One of Satan's tactics is to try to make us think that he's not real. He's some merely fictional character with little horns and people dress up as him and we just kind of laugh about him. No, not at all. Satan is a real figure. He's a great enemy to our souls. His intentions are entirely wicked. He is evil. There's a subtlety to his scheming. There is a threat uh, that he makes through this entire world. And we see that language here. This is the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the Satan, the great enemy and adversary of our souls and of the purposes of of God Almighty. But here we read that though the foe is very great indeed, that though Satan is greater, that here we read of him being bound up. We read that in verse 2, that the angel now with the key to the abyss that seizes the dragon, he takes him captive. And he's able to take him and throw the dragon down into that pit. And then throwing him down into the pit, he then shuts the lid and seals the lid over him. Do you remember, this is the angel with the key to the abyss. And so if the, if the lid is shut, the devil isn't getting out apart from his permission. And we're told that he does this so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released 
for a little while. What an image this is, dear friends. So do you understand what this is saying? It is saying that at the beginning, before the millennial period, at its outset, Satan is seized and bound in the bottomless pit till that time when he shall be let out for a little while and finally judged. However, you say at this point, well, Pastor Hill, if everything that you said about amillennialism under the first point is true, then the thousand years began at Christ's first coming. And they continued till Christ's second coming. So you're saying here that what happened with the devil being bound, seized and bound in this way, happened at the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it means that he is seized and bound in this way even now. How can that be? Because it seems like I see evidence of Satan's work everywhere that I look. Right? Open up the internet page. Go to whatever news page you like to read. And we see evidence of the work of Satan. Right? We see him in unjust, tyrannical wars that continue to be fought across this world. You see Satan's hand at work in that awful pornography industry. Grows and grows. We see Satan's hand at work in the rise of atheism and unbelief in the day in which we live. We see his hand at work, do we not, in uh, biblical sexual ethics being absolutely turned on its head. And those things which are wicked are being called good, and good things are being called uh, wicked. We see it in the killing of the unborn. Do we not see Satan's hand at work even in our lives as Christians? The daily temptations and struggles that we experience And we find ourselves at times believing those things which are lies and not according to the truth. Where do those things come from but from the hand of Satan? Satan, we're told in the Scriptures, are we not? Is he who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may uh, devour. He's the one who has many schemes of which we are to be aware. So... How is it that Satan is bound? Satan is bound in the age in which we live. Well, let me answer that question, first of all, by seeing some of what the rest of the New Testament says. And what we're actually going to see as we look at a number of verses is that there are several other passages in the New Testament which use very similar language to Revelation 20 to describe what Christ has done to Satan at Christ's first coming. And let me just give you a few of, uh, a few of those passages. Uh, the first of those is in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 29. There in Matthew chapter 12, and also in Mark 3, uh, Jesus is being challenged by Pharisees uh, after he had cast out demons from a man who was blind and mute. Well, the Pharisees say, well, 
is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Only, that's the only way that you can cast out demons. And Jesus says to them these words, Matthew 12, 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, what Jesus is clearly saying is that the way that he was able to cast demons out of a man was that he had first bound that strong man and thus was able to plunder his house. Let's go to a different passage. Luke 10, verses 17 and 18. Luke 10, 17 and 18, this uh, records for us the sending out of the 72 whom Jesus sent out two by two into towns ahead of him. And they return. And they return with this joyful news. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, Well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, some people think that this is what is what is being referred to here is when Satan's original fall as a rebellious angel. But Jesus here is responding to what he has just what has just happened in the ministry of these disciples. Why was it that they had such success? Well, Jesus is saying it is because now, in this moment, in, in the disciples' work, an indication that Satan's kingdom had just been dealt a kind of crushing blow. So Luke 10, 17 and 18. But there's another passage as well. This is in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. John 12, 31 and 32. These are in the days that are leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus says in that passage, John 12, 31 and 32, Now is the judgment of this world... Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He will be cast out. Okay? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so the point there is, is that in Jesus' crucifixion and then in His resurrection that Satan indeed is being, as it were, cast out and bound in such a way that the nations are no longer going to be deceived by him, but rather that the Lord Jesus at that moment, as he is lifted up, is going to draw all people, that is, all kinds of people, unto himself, embracing Jesus Christ by faith. And so Christ in His first coming has indeed dealt decisively with the work of Satan. And you can think of it at every stage of Jesus' life and ministry. At His birth, how Satan was unable to prevent Jesus Christ coming into the world, though He sought to do it through the killing of the firstborn. And then at the outset of Jesus' ministry, He was uh, sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there he faced Satan head on, three times being tempted by the evil one, and yet each time overcoming Satan's temptations. Or throughout his ministry, the times that Jesus freed people from demonic activity, 
showing his superiority over those demons. And then in the very, uh, or then in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus does not succumb, uh, 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 but rather, uh, but rather is willing to go all the way to his death. And then finally, on Calvary itself, he actually suffers and dies there for his people. As Colossians 2.15 says, By his death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So by his death and by his resurrection, indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ has won a victory over uh, Satan. And by his resurrection and then his ascension, Satan is cast down. And that's what was spoken of earlier in Revelation 12 and verse 5 and following of Satan being cast down through uh, the victory of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so indeed, the message here is that Christ has won the victory over Satan. That he is a defeated foe. Now, he is still active in this world. He's still subtle in his schemes. He's still the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. He is still blinding people in unbelief to the truth. But he does so not from a position of sovereignty, friends, but from that position of a defeated foe. And so in saying that he's bound, it doesn't mean that he doesn't do anything anymore but rather it's a way of pointing to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. Children, I like zoos. I like to go to zoos. You know what my very favorite part of a zoo is? It's the cages. Right? Because I like to look at those animals from the other side of the cage. I don't want that lion coming after me. And I can see the lion doing the lion kinds of things, but it can't touch me. Well, dear friends, that's what Satan is, okay? He's in a cage. He's bound. He's at work. He's still doing things. But he's limited in what he is able to do. What good news it is for us as believers. And so I want to just finish now by making a couple of applications of this. If indeed Satan is bound during this millennial period for this in this way, what applications can we make? Two things I want to say. And the first is this. It is that Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. The text says, he was thrown into the pit It was shut and sealed over him. To what end? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I don't think many of us realize just how dark the period of the Old Testament was for so much of the world. We read about the Old Testament. The revelation of God. Who was it given to? It was given to this small little group of people living in a little sliver of land in the Middle East. During that same period of time, there was the rest of the inhabited world that lived in utter darkness. Just a few weeks ago, Megan and I were at the Louvre Museum in Paris, and most of our time in the Louvre, we actually went to the kind of the 
the antiquities, we saw stuff from Egypt that was 2,000 years before Joseph ever appeared in Egypt. We, we saw stuff from ancient, uh, you know, Babylon. We, we, saw, we saw things from ancient Greece. All, all these areas that never had the slightest revelation of the truth of Almighty God other than the revelation that creation brings. Artifact after artifact made by real people who lived in a real world who were worshiping idols and there was no gospel light at all. That was how it was all the way up until that time when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared. Then he comes, he lives, he dies. He's raised from the dead. Satan is bound. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. And then suddenly they begin to preach. And they preach the gospel. And, and the, the multitudes that were gathered in Jerusalem in that day, they hear the good news. And then they go out and the gospel spread further. And we read in the book of Acts, just in decades, only a matter of decades from the resurrection of Christ, suddenly the gospel was spread throughout all of the Roman Empire. And people were believing and from there, dear friends, it was taken to Europe. Just, just, and, and out of Europe, just a, a couple centuries after that, it was made the official religion of all of Europe. And then the gospel was taken into Africa and then Asia and then finally over here to the Americas as, as well. And friends, this is a story of the gospel age in which we live. Is that suddenly now all these various nations of the earth have the Bible that is written in their language. And the few where it is still not written in their language, it is being worked on by people like the Jabellos that we have supported. And there are congregations of God's people meeting across the globe today like we're meeting here. And there are people that are being saved in every nation, among every tongue. You see, Satan is bound. He's deceiving the nations no longer. That's what this is teaching, that we live in a gospel age. And so it should give us confidence in all of our missionary work and our outreach work to, to go forth with confidence that Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. That all those whom the Father has chosen from eternity are going to come to faith in Him. And it includes a great multitude from every nation, tongue, tribe, and friends. That's the good news. Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. But now, second application is this. It is that Satan cannot disturb the church's safety in Jesus Christ. That Satan cannot disturb the church's safety in Jesus Christ. The good news of Revelation 20, friends, is that Satan is bound and if Satan has been bound by the strong man who is Jesus Christ, if I am in Christ, then Satan cannot touch me apart from him. So do we have a real foe who continues to tempt us? Yes, we do. But we're told to be aware of his scheming. Okay, to remember that we don't fight against flesh and blood, against rulers and principalities and powers in this present age. We do. We have a real enemy. But 
We are also told, Ephesians 6, right, that the Lord gives us the armor of God, everything that we need to engage in this fight. Everything that we need to engage in this fight. And so as He tempts us, we can withstand in the evil day. We can fasten on that belt of God's truth. We can put on the breastplate of righteousness. We can shod our feet with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We can in every circumstance take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We can put on the helmet of salvation and engage the very sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We can pray at all times in the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's the good news, is that Satan himself cannot touch us. Ultimately, if we are in Jesus Christ, we belong to him. We belong to him. And so we are safe in him and secure in him. And again, this ought to give us great confidence as we go through uh, this fight to serve the Lord without, without fear. Might the Lord help us to do these things, to spread the gospel, to find comfort in the Lord as we go about our work because Satan indeed is one who is bound. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the work uh, that you have done, Lord Jesus, in binding this strong man. We thank you, Lord, that the victory is not his, but it is yours. We do pray, O Lord, that we would remember this in our fight. Lord, our God in heaven, bless your word to our heart's good. For your glory.